In the face of the ongoing and various violences experienced by black women in the UK and across the world, Zinzi Minot wonders why more people don't ask, what do black women's bodies need? It's a question I've been sitting with since we recorded our conversation, which includes exploring together what our duty of care is to each other. Zinzi is a dancer, artist, and filmmaker, and she's interested in ideas of broken narrative, disturbed lineage, and how the use of the glitch can help us consider notions of racism one experiences through the span of their life. She is specifically interested in telling Caribbean stories and highlighting the histories of those enslaved and the resulting migration of the Windrush generation. In this sweeping conversation, we explore her work commemorating the Windrush generation, how we might show up better and more meaningfully for black women, and how her queerness kicked the doors open to her acceptance of what she calls her weirdness. Zinzi also explores her rearing in both the Pan-Africanist and black radical traditions, and credits her belief in abolition with helping her hold space for those she encounters among her archival and artistic practice. As she makes clear, the generations who came before us may not have had the attitudes or the language to hold who we have become in the world, but no one is to be discarded. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Zinzi Minot. Zinzi, thank you so much for joining me on Busy Being Black. I'm such a huge fan and Aww. we've kind of built this really lovely friendship on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice yeah. to, to be in conversation with you here yeah. on Busy Being Black. I'm excited. How's your heart? Huh. I feel my heart is, well, the first word that came into my mind was rested, which surprised me because I think anyone who knows they're going to have this conversation with you knows that question is coming and I've really avoided answering it all day um, so that I would say the, uh, something real. Um, yeah, I think rested surprises me because I feel anything other than rested. Um, and I think I'm, my heart is, is, is processing, which maybe is ending in rest. I think there's a lot of, process and looking at and screening like defragging taking out and settling with a lot and I think of that eventual landing spot must have to be rest or some sort of acceptance so maybe my heart is hopeful for rest as opposed to currently feeling rested oh I love hopeful for rest it's <laughs> <Me too. laughs> like a beautiful thing to think about right that yeah that this, as, as you've said, this kind of process of analyzing and metabolizing how you feel mm -hmm. has an end goal. When one is very um, in the thing, right? Like you're going through or you're actively, whether you're in some sort of work because you choose to be or because you've been pushed into it, you can lose sight that everything changes and things will invariably be different at some point you can really take your like current moment as it. And so it feels actually quite reassuring that when I answer that question in real time to you, 
that it's optimistic and it's hopeful. Yeah. Um, I think that feels like a reassuring thing to know that my heart is trying to manage. There is so much going on in the world, which feels yeah. like a really silly thing to say since it's so bloody obvious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but no. as someone concerned with bodies and movement and politics, I thought we might begin our conversation in this um, kind of fraught socio-political moment. And I'm particularly thinking of how many of us will still be reeling from the harrowing experience of child Q. Um, and for listeners who, who haven't heard about Child Q, um, Child Q um, is a Black girl in the UK who was strip searched by the police um, because one of her teachers reported her for smelling like cannabis. And the situation, I'm for many of us, was uh, awful to bear witness to, right? To understand what she, what she went through. Um, but I imagine it was amplified and magnified for Black women. And this experience, this violent experience, is very much of the body and of the psyche and perhaps illustrates at, like, at, a, at a great expense, I should add, some of the key themes that your art practice explores, right? This, this intersection of the body, politics, movement, race, gender, class. Um, and so I just wanted to engage you on that a little bit and to understand how you're feeling in the aftermath of, of Child Q. I think, um, I think when I heard, which is to say when I heard, it's actually when I read because almost everything that I find out happens through Instagram at the moment because it's the most immediate. I tend to watch the news in the evening. You know, I'm still, you know, seven o'clock news kind of girl mm -hmm. if I'm going to watch the news, which means I have a whole day where I actually find out things before actually the news tells me. So, and I think that is like significant to how I chose to interact with it, which is to, to avoid it. I didn't watch the news that night. I was very careful of the wounds that that was for for myself and for, and to even begin to really think about my body and the state. And it, it meant that actually the frequency of which, like um, of how much was on the internet became quite dangerous. It felt dangerous actually that, you know, I mean, for any of us that are like in therapy um, and have the luxury, I should add, of being in therapy, you know that there's this measured way of interacting with trauma and that if you don't do it carefully you can and if you're not supported to do it carefully you can actually cause yourself quite a bit of damage and when I saw child Q, that is what I thought I was I need to be really careful here and I guess I say that because um as a friend reminded me maybe 20 years ago now whenever you're speaking to a woman you're probably speaking to a survivor and it was something that I have never forgotten when she said it to me, that she was like, you need to always remember that. And I think that also resonates with Child Q, that although those experiences are exceptional and uh, horrendous, um, we also even understand in the aftermath that they're not anomalous, right? The numbers of child strip searches actually started to come out quite quickly. Um, 
and yeah I live in a body that is like a site of violence like I have to find a way of resolving my life as like a uh ephemeral being that lives in a tangible body right like Mm -hmm. I have to find a way of holding that where that being actually sits and sometimes that means I can't actually (laughs) yeah you know you've made me think of my own social media activity in the aftermath of child Q, which was uh, reflective of an anger I felt, right? And I hadn't considered until this very moment, until you raised it, that there may have been uh, people like yourself who gather their news and their information from a platform that I often express myself on and it's made me wonder, well, what, what, is, what then becomes my duty of care in these moments, right? How do I learn that there will be people I'm following or in conversation with or building friendships with who are actively avoiding something that I'm actively amplifying? Mm. And I wonder if we talk yeah. about that duty of care enough. Um, honestly, I think I could say something that would be quite snippy or like as in concise like trigger warnings or like Mm. but actually I think it's more complicated than that I wish I had a a actual simple answer to what that duty of care would really be um or a simple request but actually I understand that all things are happening like (sighs) many things can be happening many things can be true at the same time right like I can need to be quiet while you need to be loud like and really what we're trying to do when we're trying to coexist in this like site of perpetual violence which is this time now is figure out how to hold everybody's needs it's not perfect it's actually horrendously sloppy it's horrendously sloppy and deep mistakes are made and horrendous wounds are caused and we're all trying or many of us are trying and living in that truth is hard actually because it means that there isn't something really concise for me to say to you. I don't have a simple request from you as like someone who I really know to be fighting for my life, but I don't have anything to say. I can just say, I saw you like on Instagram and maybe I just went by and I was like, I don't see that shit. Right, 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 but I don't actually have something to say about what you should or shouldn't have done. Yeah, and I think that maybe it's not so much a solutions-oriented offering as much as it's a way of saying thank you for bringing that up because it's a, it helps me think in new ways and, and act in new ways, yeah. right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. so much of what we're doing through Busy Being Black and through your art practice is to ask people to be considerate of this journey that we're on together. As you say, how do we, how do we figure out how to hold each other? Um, and I think we've spoken about that on the show before, right? That we're all... broken people are trying to hold other broken people together right and that maybe together we can we can make something beautiful out of this mess I think like what I think could be an interesting moment or like response to child Q and 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 I say this knowing that I've also actively avoided a lot of what's happening so forgive me if something like this did happen was actually to ask black women what they need. What do they need to do with their bodies right now? Like where was, like where, like, 
I am sure it reminds me a little bit of Michaela Cole's um, I Will Destroy You, which I didn't watch for the same reason. I have not seen it. And when everybody started talking about it, I was like, oh, oh, no, no. That's going to add like 12 weeks onto my therapy. We ain't going here. And within it coming out, I know it's a sensational piece of work. I don't need to see it to, to know that because that response alone tells me she did what she came to do. And after it came out, so many people came to me and they were like, I just realized this. I just realized this. I just realized this. And it made me know I'd made the right decision. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's something around when your life is projected into the media or when a violent moment that is so singularly about your identity's experience, the, the care that I think often is missing is what do people need outside of the fight, right? Like, so we've got a front line and we've got the screaming and we've got the placards, but ultimately when we go home, whoever we've been fighting for, if it's not all of us, is still that person, is that identity, is holding that wound. And I think if we were to think about psychological violence or the trigger of remembering physical violence the same way we did an actual bleeding wound, we would treat people's bodies a lot differently. And I think right. that's really why, for me, my work around the body, okay, I'm a dancer and this gives me this very like specific access to the body or thinking through the body, but it's really understanding the impacts of my identity on my body, like really understanding that like, I will die earlier, like holding that and knowing that and remembering the day I found out that I will die earlier than my white counterpart. Even if we do exactly the same thing other than be black and white, I'm gonna die earlier. So that gives me a completely different relationship to my sense of time, space. Woo, we're getting thunderstorms, I don't know if you can hear that. Hmm. Um, yeah, like I have to walk differently. I have to hold this body differently. I have to hold my mind differently because actually the racialization, the gendered um, experience that I'm having, the gender expression experience I'm having, the, the class experience I'm having makes this body an incredibly hostile space with which to try and navigate the world through. And that feels really important for me to focus on as a dancer. Mm. I can't ignore that as somebody who has spent most of my life studying how to get my body to do what I want it to do. You know, I want to touch on a made story just very briefly, because you, you helped me remember something. There's a, you know, um, and we'll leave people who haven't seen I May Destroy You to, you know, Google it and, and find out what it's about. But I also stopped watching. There was a scene that was too close to my own experience. And I had forgotten that I shut down at that point and didn't finish the series because it was too close, right? And I wanna thank you for reminding me of that, right? That, um, that I have my own experiences encountering um, violences that I've experienced and that I actually do my own kind of buttressing, if you will, to protect me for that. And I also wanna acknowledge, um, you know, and, and make space for you to explore. And I think we'll do it for this, through this conversation, but just wanted to acknowledge this, this, 
that I recognize and I'm trying to appreciate and to make space for the complexity of Black women's bodies and lived experience, right? And as you were speaking, I was thinking, ah, oh, yes, of course, the body houses this emotional interior life, right? That has to drive the bus, as it were, right? Like it has to, it has to guide the ship, the vessel. Um, and so it's, I'm always really grateful for those reminders that um, to, to hold people in that complexity and to acknowledge that. I think there's something that we often, yeah, I mean, you don't know what you don't know, right? And I think a lot of the time living in a body, anybody, we can experience violences and not even necessarily know they were violent because we've been shrouded in violence and nobody told us it was violent. So we might feel unnerved by what happened, but we actually have no context in which that is affirmed, which is why I May Destroy You was so powerful, I imagine, is because it affirmed a lot of people that didn't even know they needed affirming. Right, yes. Right? (laughs) And I'm sure with Chow Q, that is the same. Like there are hundreds of thousands of, millions of black women around the world that I've had interactions with the state that have that are I'm sure as violent or on a spectrum of violence that have never been affirmed as violent right that like if the baseline of your treatment by your if we go into the education system by your teachers by the police who are invited into your school by your teachers who have a pastoral duty of care to you they are paid to care for you if, if that is all violent, how are you to know that one particular thing is violent? If, 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 the, if the environment and right. the, um, every action is violent, whether it's you drop your fork or you are late or you are in the lunch queue or you smell like cannabis, allegedly, like even the idea that a smell, which is a residue of something that happened, that nobody can prove was you or anybody else. It's such a ridiculous notion Mm. that a smell would have a direct connection to the complete violation of your physical body. But that is like the level of violence that black women and girls are living with, that there are so many direct routes of accessing our bodies that are violent. And I think a lot of people don't think about that. No, really, honestly, like, my mind is yeah, like, blown. <laughs> well, because I'm think, thinking about like, the, this is, I hope this doesn't sound weird. The, the phrase in my head is native violence, which isn't quite right, but I'm, I'm trying violence to. Violence or like. So, if, so you're talking about like an environment of violence and in my head, I'm trying to situate our understanding of what violence is via our proximity or saturation in it right which is what i'm so i'm trying to understand i think there's a relationship to violence and my relationship to violence is obviously different to yours which is different to a white woman's which is different to a a, a, you know an indigenous person in you know brazil and our under, you've made, you're making me think about like how at once there is a recognition that certain types of violence are bad, 
and at the same time almost expected. And that even that broad recognition of bad violence, right? If we have to hierarchize violence, still obscures multitudinous violences that many of us will have never experienced and have no language to, and therefore capacity to create space for, for other people. Uh, that felt very long-winded, but am I understanding correctly? Yeah, because I think what a lot of people don't realize, and I don't, I think this is something across races, across genders, across classes, is that we are socialized to hate black women. And we are socialized to view black women as a social punch bag. And it happens in all communities. Like it happens, even, even if you take a room full of black women, the violence towards dark skinned women from lighter skinned women, the violence towards disabled women, the violence towards trans women will be so apparent, even if that whole group is black because there is the, the socialization towards the uh, allowance. We are allowed to be violent towards right. black women. Yeah. And so when people feel bad, when people have a bad day or have bad relationships with the black women in their families, the way those people interact with me is like a punch bag. And I've had that from a variety of people I, I think it would be too simplistic to say that's like something that happens with white people. I have this with black queer people of all genders and races that they just hate black women and they have not even got to the point where they're ready to face that. Mm. They're really ready to sit down and be like, do I respect black women? Do I love black women? Do I think dark skinned black women are valuable? Do I only appreciate thin or light or wealthy or good haired black women, yeah, yeah. able but yeah, right? And the yeah. list goes on and on. And you see that reflected in, I'm gonna talk about like our shared community now, you see that reflected even in a, in a smaller community than the, like uh, say the wider black community of England, even, which is still quite small, but even within the like black queer community just in England, you see that reflected in how we choose to reflect ourselves publicly. Mm -hmm. yeah as a community yes 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 right the collective decisions we have made about how we choose to represent ourselves as a community is enough evidence of that yeah and, and yet everybody wants to fall down and be shocked about child q which is exactly why i closed my phone because i was like we're not doing this right. today people we're not we're not doing it we've been telling you yeah and that that connection between child q and the queer black community while now obvious because you've you've um, brought it into relief um, I hadn't even, I hadn't made before as well, right? That this expression of massage noir um, finds, its, uh, finds its way into, uh, maybe this is what you're talking about actually in, in one of your exhibition notes, right? That, that you're, you're kind of making this explicit point that we're all kind of see, steeped in. Yeah, I think this, that's a really good word. This racism uh, and we might go even further to say that we are steeped in a massage noir that perhaps your work aims to address and to get us to think about. Yeah, definitely. I think when, when you said steeped, I actually thought of like, uh, for those of us who, I would say this is definitely a Caribbean practice. I don't know who else does it. I imagine also like white working class folk and like working class Irish folks soak fruit for a Christmas cake. 
you know this practice of like like no. uh around basically the day after christmas somebody like some like your mom or your gran or like somebody in your house will start tipping fruit berries raisins into like massive jars and filling it with rum and and other like very strong liquor and then it just like goes on top of some cupboard and that's the fruit for next year's christmas cake and it's kind of this like annual uh quite in a way quite quiet but i think uh, people have a little bit of nostalgia around it because it's like preparation for the next christmas and um like jamaican fruit cake christmas cake jamaican fruit cake is massive it is like an institution there's that heart um, hope that you spoke about at the beginning as well right there's a there's a, right a, yeah a, mm-hmm. line a projection yeah. yeah like you're like you're saying there will be something right which i think even to think about the future as black people is incredibly brave it is an incredibly brave thing to project yourself into a future in a world that is trying to annihilate you and i think black people do it in so many different ways like the fruit yeah um and i guess when you say like steeped that's kind of the type of soaking that I'm thinking about, like the type of violence that we are raised in, soaked in, steeped in, it's, it's, it's in our bones. Like, you know, as somebody said to me the other day, a black woman said it's in the marrow. She wrote me a message, a friend of mine on Instagram, and she said, it's in the marrow, Zinzi. And that rocked me to my core, but I don't think she's wrong. And I think if we understand it's that bad, then we understand the work we have to do it's not so much like there's nothing for you to do that's the situation right yeah (laughs) there's no it's like it's like when you know white people get really mad about you know i was talking about reparations or talking about slavery it's like babes we know you weren't there that's not what we're trying to say (laughs) (laughs) like we really know you're not a time traveler we're trying to get you to acknowledge the state of fact so we can actually start to make progress and whilst we're in this like state of denial no progress can be made Mm. and yeah i think just like we know we have um practices of acknowledging like internalized homophobia as like lgbtqia people were like we got some stuff to deal with because we know that we didn't come in up in a world that was completely welcoming for our experience even if you had great parents great family the wider context was hostile yeah we have notions around internalized racism i think we need more like terms around like internalized misogynoir for example like what is your relationship with black women do you do do you really respect them? Do you value them? Do you love them? Do you protect them? Do you care about them? And, and when you do, what do they look like? Where do they sit in society? What do they have? Do you get angry when a black woman has an opinion? Mm. Do you want to shut her up? You know, like mm-hmm. these types of things. And yeah, like for me, like I, f- I find it like incredible that somebody like Lady Phil, who I know we both know, like how long it's taken her to get her recognition. Right, yeah. I, I believe, I have no doubt that there is a direct correlation between that and the fact that she's a dark skinned black woman who looks like she does. Yeah. I, I am convinced, I have no, no one can convince me otherwise. Like this woman started black pride. How could she not have millions of followers? Right. Like, I just don't understand like, how she could not be or somebody like her, Denise Pereira de Silva, who is an incredible academic titan. Like most people can't even hold a conversation with her without falling down. She's so brilliant. And people don't really, lots of people don't really know her, but they know her peer who she works with all the time, Fred Moten. And I'm just like, yo, let's get real people. Like let's really get real at 
what choices we're making yeah you so, know yeah mm. yeah mm. you know <laughs> i remember when phil and i met um in 2018 i said to her i'm going to do everything i can to help you to like amp give you the profile you deserve and so that was kind of my commitment to her that was what i felt i had within my control to do was to kind of assist in shining that light on her um, but even then it's not enough right and, and you're right it's this kind of structural um diminishing right of the the utter and sheer impact that she's had what people don't realize is often what any black woman has achieved which you are celebrating her for especially if she is darker skinned trans disabled poor is a fragment of what she's done by the time everybody gets there to be like, well done, it's a fragment. And also it's a fragment of what could have happened if we were supported. And I know that about any other black woman as I know about myself. I know had I had better support and wasn't dealing with the consequences of my identity, which I guess many people can say, I also would have achieved more. I know that. Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with dancer, artist, and filmmaker Zinzi Minot. Her latest work, Blood Sound, features newly commissioned prints, moving image, sound, and sculpture, and builds upon her durational film works, Fidem, which are released annually on the 22nd of June to commemorate the Windrush generation. What I've noticed in the works that I'm exploring or drawn to at the minute are these themes of commemoration, memory, remembering, archiving, documenting, um, and I don't know why it's standing out for me in this particular moment, but I was really struck um, in Fidem this desire to commemorate. And so I'd love to draw you out on what commemoration means for you versus an act of archiving or more broadly remembering. Mm, I think when you say commemoration alongside archiving, my first thought is private and public. So when I think about archives, I mean, and there can be many different types of archive, I accept that. I don't want the archivist to come for me when I say this, but I, the, the traditional and maybe even contemporary understanding of an archive often is that they're really inaccessible. And actually, no, I think I can confidently say that because I work with archival material and I spend a lot of time stealing it. Yeah, I mean, look, the word archive carries with it a, a, a gate, if you will. 
exactly and I think like part of my practice in this um like act of commemoration or or returning to which is also what for them is about is 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 a, it's a returning to it's it's cyclical it's about a reflection of of a year that I've lived but also how that links to the lives that were lived before both in my biological family and and my wider community right um as somebody who is of Caribbean heritage and therefore obviously um my ancestors were enslaved right as well as my ancestors were um were there was a genocide on my ancestors as well as my ancestors were indentured right because we cannot not also forget that the Caribbean people are incredibly mixed and I want to be careful about this like puritanical conception of 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 the Caribbean as well um but because of that there were like so many histories that are happening within me and so many pains that it feels important to keep coming back and saying, okay, where are we now? Okay, where are we now? As that's happening in, and we return to that in the contemporary moment. So let's say like ancestral interference was made whilst COVID was happening. Mm -hmm. So then there was a, a reflection on, say for example, the exceptionally high rates of black people dying and what that meant. And when that started, which if we really cast our minds back, we have to go and look at the slave trade, right? right we have right. to go and look at what the slave trade has done to black bodies or what has happened in the process of dehumanizing black people is in this contemporary moment, we are of course still dying more. So it's like these kind of concentric circles of, of revisiting and in, in the public space. And, and also, I guess there is a, a real sense of gratitude you know, my, my grandmother was a nurse. Um, she died before the Windrush scandal, which for me is really important because I actually don't think she would have coped with it. I, I really think she would have, it would have really destroyed her sense of her identity. I don't want to suggest that she was fragile in her identity, but everything that she presented to me as a person was this incredible pride. Right. Like for her being a nurse, and that uniform was akin to being in the army. You know, it was, it was a uniform to be worn with pride. It was a duty of service that she did for her mother country, for, for queen and country. And also in the process of caring for other people, like in the West, her people were harmed. She didn't get to look after her children. Right. She didn't get to be at home. And so there's a great sacrifice. And I think, you know, it's, it's really important to me to also acknowledge the amount of work that my ancestors have had to do, whether in the recent or distant past, in order for me to have this life, even though it's quite difficult. Like, it's really important for me to like not lose connection to that. Like, I have the ability in my life to prioritize my happiness. It's actually how I live my life. It's why, I, it's why I make art, because I'm trying to prioritize my happiness. And I think I might be the first generation of my family to actually do that. And that's like a big deal. I have to take that really seriously and not get lost in the source of entitlement around that. That is so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you know, the you. first question that popped into my head though was, does your queerness assist in that pursuit of happiness? 
absolutely oh my god I think my queerness is like a a guiding light or like some sort of I think there are like a few saviors in my life that have propelled me into thinking through things one of them is like the radical black tradition which I was raised in and my family are activists so that was something that made me prod things but they are pan-Africanist um, activists and it's very heteronormative right like it's very much the black family ideal very hierarchical you know um and then queerness happened and it allowed me to face these two radical traditions kind of and, and let them do you know what we would say my family's reason like they have conversations right they're in constant debate and discourse I think queerness gave me a place to rest being weird <laughs> right yeah you know it's like oh no you are weird like you're really weird <laughs> and that's all right yeah. like you know like you don't have to want to build this like one man one woman two children one lawyer one doctor family in order to be radical which is what I was raised in it's not the only black radical tradition but it's where I was raised there's also this site of celebration of oddity and failure and and deconstruction and like complete decimation of ideas and I think that was really important as I was like growing up and building my identity of like what I wanted to be queerness was like do whatever you want which is so exciting and I think (laughs) that's probably the most for me exciting thing about being queer is it's like whatever yeah and that reminder like because I think that Mm -hmm. the potential to do whatever we want can also be terrifying right and so Mm -hmm. I love this idea Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just Mm -hmm. I just scribbled down reckoning and commemoration that that through this queerness and you're saying you're you learn to prod and to question and also to rest in your weirdness that you're now kind of looking back to commemorate how are you then reckoning with this heteronormativity both in this like is there a way for you to account for some of the contradictions or the limitations um, of those who've come before us and how do you exalt their contributions in the face of those contradictions or limitations I think it depends on on the scale of what those limitations were Mm. you know like because I'm sure my family is very similar to a lot of families um of my generation but also experiences of of identity is very violent there's a lot of violence in my family's history and just in order to sort through the mess one has to put it on a scale (laughs) like if you were to look at it all the same you wouldn't even be able to get anything done because it is incredibly violent some people just for me are removed because of of the violence the, the, the massive amount of violence that particular people plagued on my family, whether that was before I came or since. And I think that's more like a, um, like a decision of att- uh, attention, right? It's like, where am I going to give my attention? Right. Like, I just don't want to give you my attention. It's not to say you didn't live. It's not to say you weren't real and human and that there weren't complexities. I just don't want to give you my attention because of the pain that you seem to have caused my family. And then there are mm. other people 
who say, I think about my Auntie Rosalind a lot, actually, because she was quite violent. But I also keep finding out things that happened to her that make me understand who she was. Right. I barely knew her, actually. And that's also important for me, right, to understand that somebody who I barely knew, whose name comes up mostly as an unkind person, was actually the victim of mass unkindness, right? So that, that's a lesson to live with. Right. And so commemoration then is this sorting, sifting, encountering, reanalyzing, re-diverting attentions, calling other things forward, pushing other things back. Like it, it's a process. Yeah. And I think like, I like this idea of like sifting and because it makes me think about and um, when people are sifting for gold, my family, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my grandma right. was born in Guyana and she was born near a gold mine. And I think what's interesting about when you sift gold, right, is this idea that some of what you have is um, useless, you throw it back. And then you take this bit and that's the valuable part. I think for me, unlike sifting gold, it's that you always have the same amount of material. You're never rejecting some and saying it, it's bad or taking some out and saying it's more valuable. You're constantly looking at the same amount of material and you're reorganizing it. So when I say I'm not going to give this person, this ancestor, my attention, they don't go out. They don't get thrown out back in the water to run downstream. Right. They stay with me and I have to hold that and look at this. And then it might be that that rotates the next year. Right. I might have more skills. I might have more tools. I might have more understanding. Yeah. Yeah, Like someone might tell me a story about why this person was so terrible or or actually how they were so great. You know, this is such a, it's so generous, right? And the reason I'm kind of laboring this point though, is because I think that it's a, it's a confrontation or a reckoning that many of us are having at the minute. Right. And as we not only confront the current moment that we inhabit together but we try to understand some sort of genealogy for the moment right as we try to understand how we got here and who has helped and who has not and who we exalt and who we don't that there tends to be a very kind of um uh thin approach to what Mm. what is a very complex history histories and lived experiences. And I think what you're offering us through your art and through this explanation is a way to say, hey, look, actually, it's about creating a bit of space and maybe a bit of heft to hold yeah, 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 yeah. these things all together and kind of a refusal to discard. Yeah, and I wanna say, like, as, as we're talking, like, you know, I think it's important to say that, like, I aspire to being an abolitionist. And I say I aspire because I think to be a prison abolitionist is to is is actually quite difficult. It is it is to say that things have happened and nobody gets discarded, which means we need to find a way of living with people who have caused us pain. Whereas the like prison industrial complex is discarding people all the time, is removing people from society and saying we don't have to live or even see you because you cause pain. Right. And you know, I think many people are prison abolitionists that I interact with or would say that they are, but the abolitionist mindset is not just for the moment that we're in, it's also for our histories. It's also, it's at least something I wanna apply to my family. You know, like I wanna understand how to not discard the memory of a relative who was penis. 
Like I need to figure that out, right? Because that relative is also my great grandfather. They're not just the acts that they, they cause to people within my family, even though I didn't meet them. So if I'm going to have this like abolitionist perspective, this like radical inclusive perspective for tomorrow, then I, I can also have that within my own body and my own genealogy. I can hold all of myself, all of the things that I have done, good, bad, and indifferent, and all the things that other people have done and still say, you are my family. I won't discard you from my memory. I won't pretend you're not my great grandfather. And that's difficult. Like it is hard because those people are also in you. And if, I think maybe if we can do that, then maybe if I can do that for myself, then I might be able to do that for other people. I might be able to also live with people outside of me and outside my genealogy who are more than memories or more than ideas. Like my great grandfather is an idea. I didn't meet him. Right. So if I can live with that, then it might give me some tools, a skill set to actually practice my abolition, like ideas, like my abolitionism. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, in the real. In the real, in yeah. The physical, yeah, in, the, like, in the present. Yeah, like so many of us are, are, are sometimes the first or the first people to think these ideas within our family or the first people at least to give name to an idea. It's not that I don't think my family are not abolitionists, they are. They just haven't said that word to me. So I'm bringing a word into my family that maybe is helping us put an umbrella on a shared set of ideas, right? Like they yeah. know this, they don't want prisons. Like they yeah. know that. Yeah. <laughs> like they're yeah. like, we have family in prison, they know that. I think the reason why I raise that is because if that is who you are in your family, like somebody who, is currently given name to a set of ideas. You have to practice it in both spaces. Can't just practice it in your like fancy uh, academic MABA PhD millennial Gen Z queer black spaces, right? Where people have salaries and doctorates. Yeah. Like that's not where I'm from. My family are poor. My family are really poor. And it is a violent drug addled state interrupted horrendous place that I grew up in and yet everybody there attempted even if they failed to live in like real sense of fortuity optimism and hope and there was real community and allyship amongst all of those failures I want to figure out a way of living in both spaces I don't want to have to be isolated in this in this like intellectual space I need to be able to confront my own history with those ideas as well just you're amazing <laughs> <laughs> thank you you're so amazing um, <laughs> <laughs> I had a conversation with professor Terry Ellis Pickens um, mm -hmm. last year she wrote black madness mad blackness and in it she explores mm. the fold uh, which I think yeah. was uh, maybe Sylvia Winter or one of our mm. um, queer Black or Black women mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. theorists and thinkers um, mm -hmm. and liminal spaces, right? In the context of cognitive and physical disabilities. And what Professor Pickens is arguing is that in the fold, through the cracks, in mm -hmm. the liminal, there is a mm -hmm. potential for is more- Is the liminal the between? The liminal is the between, yeah. Okay. 
there's this potential for more radical ways of being and moving, right? There's a, there's a possibility created in these cracks and fissures and spaces and folds. And I wanna bring you and Professor Pickens in conversation together here because you say that you're really interested in quote, how the use of the glitch can help us to consider the notions of racism when experiences through the span of their life. Are, we, are you talking about the same thing? Is, is the glitch an opportunity for possibility? Can you maybe expand on uh, that? Ah, okay, so no, I don't, I, well, hmm, that was quite a, a quick answer. What I'm gonna say is what I think the glitch is right. for me. Okay. And you know, a lot of people are using the word glitch. So it's not, there's no singular uh, notion. For me, the glitch is like, it's an interruption. It's like, I mean, you know, I'm a millennial. So like the matrix was one of the biggest moments in my life. <laughs> um, probably still is. And I don't know if you remember the phrase as a glitch in the matrix. Yes, yes. Right, and you remember how it went zzz. Yeah. And it's this idea that like, okay, we can put the matrix to a side for a second now, but it's this idea that like, when you have a black life, you have these moments where you're just living, right? You're just, you're just in your body, you're in your life, everything's going great. You're in the park, chatting with your friends, everything's hilarious, you're full of joy. And then someone walks over and racism. Oh. And it's like, and it, and it makes you kind of, for me, it, it's like, I always go, huh? Like, oh, wow, okay. So I'm not human to you right now, right? Like. There's, there's like an interference with my life. And I think in, in for them, it's, it's, um, it's this uh, like colored um, static that I put over the film. So you'll see, like, I can actually show you this picture. Um, so this is like a still of one of the films for everyone mm -hmm. who's gonna watch it anyway. So that's, that's a picture of my maternal family, my grandmother in the middle. These colors over are the glitch. So it's like how we perceive my family. And in the films, you'll see that like there's joyous family events with the glitch just superimposed or with bits cut out. And that might be because the police arrived and told you to turn down your music, or that might be because there are these moments of interference within your life. Um, for me, they affect, they affect how I see, they affect how I be you know, mm. in a moment where I might take complete license and then retract because I remember who I am. But also you see it when people interact with you, um, that you're being perceived as subhuman. I mean, that's what racism is. Yeah. Um, so I think that's how, I, how I'm using the glitch, like within, within my work is this sense of interference and it comes from probably from technology. So it's from TVs and static and also, you know, these ideas that, that are, you know, very like sci-fi as well from the matrix and, and the idea that, you know, we're living in an altered reality and every so often we get reminded of that, right? So maybe the altered reality is that actually we're all equal and the same. Well, the altered <laughs> and, reality is the one that the matrix, as it were, is the one you and your friends created in the park. Right, exactly. Okay, yeah. which is, and that's where we live, which is a sense of being the same, being equal. We create right. these moments, right? I think for, for any queer person who has been into like a queer space at night and you leave, that feeling of crossing the threshold, I feel like there could just be a glitch on the on the door. Right. 
and you're going back into the world. Maybe you got changed before you left. Maybe you took off your high shoes or you wiped off some of your makeup or, you know, maybe you have got a whole different, that's the glitch, right? When you have to recognize you're not okay to be in the world as you want. All of that for me is glitch. Yeah. And so glitch is not a doorway, right? It's not a, no, it's no. not a sliver in the kind of <laughs> psychic or physical realms, right? It doesn't allow, no. it's, it doesn't, it's not a doorway through to something else beyond, right? No. Which but, is perhaps what think- Professor Pickens is, is alluding to in the folds and the spaces and the, and the fissures, right? That yeah. in these spaces where people are forgotten, um, this kind of radicality emerges where you're saying there is this, this glitch is this confrontation with the uh, psychologically built environment that Black people try yeah. to create around ourselves. Definitely. And, and also, about what I would say is that I do also work with portals, which is probably why this is coming up, right. is that I am interested in the space between, which is why I started smiling um, when, you, when you mentioned it, because from a dance perspective, we think about musicality, um, Think about like African diasporic dance. What musicality is is actually it's not it's not the beat. It's the space between the beat. Everything that you can do between the beat is your musicality. All the decisions that you make, and because so many black uh, dance traditions, like African diasporic dance traditions, are built with a relationship between a live musician and live dancing, what you then have are these like cycles of um, call and response you know if you're if you're dancing with a live dj and there are moments where you're completely with the music and you feel like you're even predicting the music and then ah, it's gone yeah yeah, yeah. right and yeah. That, that's the play that you and the dj are in and you are doing that through the between space because actually to be on beat to be in rhythm is not to be with the music it is to be ahead of the music so rhythm is actually predicting the future Ah. it's not being in the present moment. It has nothing to do with the present moment. It's actually looking ahead and making assessments based on what your musician is doing and placing a bet. So there's like all of these correlations between the idea that black people have really good rhythm and really great dancers and like optimism and hope and futurity. Yes. Right. So for me, like these mid spaces are really exciting because this is where we are like conjuring futurity. We're saying we're going to be there when the beat drops. And the rhythm as, a, as an act of bravery, right? As you said earlier, yeah. that the, the yeah. idea yeah. that Black people might project themselves into the future yeah. is, a, is an act of bravery. Yeah, and, and, and also, you know, all those moments that you're in a party and, and you're dance, whether it's like, you know, hand percussion or electronic music, and you miss the beat, these are like, we could call them like micro failures or like micro tears or something then we don't dwell on them we laugh we're like ah right. you know you know the dj got you right because you're in this relationship with them and you return you start again right so there's it there's, it's playful i guess that's what i'm saying that there's a play with it and the virtuosity i guess isn't perfection i think that's maybe where i'm trying to get to is that that there are, there's so much failure in, in, in virtuosity and that it doesn't have to even be a negative, the idea of failure doesn't have to be a negative word. It's just a moment to reset. 
and start again, start the game again. Like, oh, okay, let's go back to the beginning. And you might do that for eight hours in a rave. Yeah. You know, or and then you leave yeah. feeling, yeah, or <laughs> elsewhere. And you, yeah. And you leave feeling cleansed, right? Mm. Like, I mean, look, we could, we're almost out of time and we could literally talk forever, I feel like. Forever. <laughs> There's something that, that stood out to me um, that you wrote in your exhibition notes for FitM3. Um, in 2020, quote, my ancestors meddle, they interfere, they see cracks and breakthrough, and they scream with us, they rage with us, they remind us, it is conjuring the strength of those who fought for their lives, there will be ancestral interference. And I love this, I think it was Leonard Cohen who said that, um, who wrote rather that the cracks are how the light gets in. Yeah, and I love yeah, this. yeah, yeah this beckoning of our ancestors through your work, through the cracks, through the glit, not through the glitches actually, because that's not a portal. <laughs> um, and not, but the point being not necessarily to come to our aid, mm -hmm. but to stand alongside us in the expression of a collective rage. That feels healing mm. to me. And I just wanted to, as we close, I wanted to invite you to reflect on that, on the, on the ancestors joining us. I think it's very much a, you didn't use the word conjuring, you used the word beginning, beckoning. Beckoning. Yeah. Um, it is beckoning, it is co uh, conjuring and acknowledging at the same time. Like, I know that they're interfering. Like, I know, right? Because we wouldn't even really be able to have this conversation if there wasn't consistent interference by the resistance that they laid down, right? Like, our freedom, like, they, they, they literally left tracks of interference that we can know a sense of freedom to then try and have more freedom so there is but there is also this like conjuring this um real sense of like ground pull right it's like I think we can like charge with them we can it's really hard to keep resisting right it requires so much energy to keep pressure yeah right and I think there's a tiredness, there's a fatigue in the body. There's, uh, 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 we're bereft. And I think at that moment, I'm like looking for the interference. I'm like, where, like, where are you? Who was it? What did you do? It's asking for strength, I guess. And remembering like not, again, like not getting in, lost in this source of entitlement, right? Like remembering I have a freedom that is very new in my bloodlines, very, very new doesn't mean I'm not in pain it doesn't mean that real things aren't happening to me but I think it's it's saying like you know I'm trying to be happy and I'm trying to do the things that I am passionate about I'm trying to be a good person trying to have a legacy I'm trying to leave the world in a better state than I found it but I'm tired you know like yeah. and being really real with that like I am so exhausted and sometimes you just have to ask for help and sometimes it's interpersonal and sometimes it's like, it's ancestral. And I think when I made for them three, that's how I felt. I was like, we're really gonna need you now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and remembering that they are there is really important. Like we're not alone. We're, we're not alone, but also this fight is old. And I think if we remember that the fight is old, we understand we're in a stage we're not recreating, we're, 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 
a chapter in a book that we are not going to see the end of. And I, therefore, I, you know, we have an opportunity here to create our own interference. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. We're building right? on we're interferences. Laying, yeah, Got exactly. It. And we're actually laying interference, right? Like the yeah. things that we're doing are... So when somebody comes in a hundred years and finds this in an archive, they can know this conversation has been happening mm. and that's going to be interference, right? That's going to sit, like maybe the ancestral interference sits alongside the glitch, right? The glitch is like all static and the interference is trying to retune the TV and say no. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, the, the ancestral um, interference is trying to prevent the, the glitches, right? But we have yeah, to... Yeah toy with it from our side as well from, from our side too. we've got to we wriggle the antenna yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly exactly and we have to let them come through and sometimes you scream, scream I think in the same text even maybe I say this like sometimes you scream a scream that's bigger than you yes a pain that's, that's bigger ancestral. than your pain yeah yeah. Pain, yeah that's ancestral interference right like when you open your mouth and you're surprised at what comes out that's not just you Right. And it's about like knowing that and believing that that sometimes you speak and it's not just you. And that's OK. Like we don't have to be scared of that. We can really live with that and know that we've been fought for and we are fighting for. And that that's where that's where we live. It's not fair. It's not right. But it's definitely true. To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? Hmm. Well, as you asked me that, all the windows in my studio are on the left and I turned and saw a blue sky. Uh, there's been a storm for all of our conversations. That's right. The sky is just opened yeah. here too. Or cleared rather exactly. here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I think I find something so um, restful about a blue sky and a, a blue sea horizon. Um, and I guess I just hope for more blue skies, you know, in the like kind of obvious, like as, as that relates to the actual sky, but also all of the feelings that that gives me in my body and all of the different places that I can have those feelings from. And I just hope for more blue skies. You know, I think it's worth noting that over the course of our conversation, we had, you had a thunderstorm, I had a torrential downpour, this environmental interference. She might be a witch. And as we talk, and as we talk about, you know, inviting the ancestors um, into our lives, and as, as you talk about, you know, creating space for them, the sky is clear, the sun comes out, this blue sky emerges. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to acknowledge that, that in this audio yeah. experience that our yeah, listeners yeah, yeah. will be having, that we had a very physical experience during the recording of it. And so maybe the ancestors Definitely. have interfered here too. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Zinzi, thank you are so such a, oh, you're such a beautiful human. And <laughs> thank you so much for offering such generosity and wisdom, not only in this conversation, but in the work that you continue to put out into the world. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Anytime, anytime. I'm really grateful for it.
Zinzi Minot's work focuses on the relationship between dance, bodies, and politics. She explores how dance is perceived through the prisms of race, queer culture, gender, and class. Blood Sound is Zinzi's latest work and features newly commissioned prints, moving image, sound, and sculpture, and expands on her durational film works, Fadem. You'll find more information about Zinzi and her enduring and important work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. I'm so busy being black.